All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, we've got a very exciting one here today. As fans of the show, I'm sure you know by now, as a child of the 90s, I'm a big fan of Are You Afraid of the Dark and such. Goosebumps, pretty much any anthology show, be it for kids or adults. And today we've got a prolific director and writer, Ron Oliver, and we chat about his creative process, behind the scenes of Are You Afraid of the Dark, Dr. Vink, Sardo, Goosebumps, Prom Night, and more. As always, folks, thanks for listening. And if you'd like to help the show out, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) So Ron, just take us back in time so we have a platform to jump off. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader? Fort Builder, Troublemaker, or all of the above? Oh, I was a book reader. I wasn't much of a troublemaker per se. I kind of, I was pretty goal focused really early on in life. So yeah, I was a book reader. I love books. I, my first books, they used to have the Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. I loved those books when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. They were so much more interesting than the Hardy Boys, which I, I always thought the Hardy Boys were dullards, but uh, Hitchcock's people were great. Well, I have a whole line of the Hardy Boys collection books over here. <laughs> Oh, I read them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember the hardest one to get in the store, the one hardest one to find, was the um, private investigator or private detective's handbook. Yeah, that was, that was the hardest one to find. I remember finding it. I don't know where those books are now, but I remember finding that one, going, "Oh my god, it's the Holy Grail of Hardy Boys books." Yeah, I don't have that one. <laughs> oh, it's great! It told you how to like spy on people and take fingerprints and all this stuff. Like just exactly what a nine-year-old child needs. The good stuff. <laughs> so, so what about your parents, Ron? Were they involved in the arts at all, or? Did they... uh, my dad was a yeah. My dad was a um, a rockabilly singer. He had a band up in Canada. He was pretty well known in our part of the country up there. He, and he was yeah, he was a guitarist and singer and like you know the sort of Elvis years, the pre-fat Elvis years. And then <laughs> and then my mom was a model. And they met serendipitously. They met at a like a community dance. My father's band was playing, and then they they were there. And then they both gave up pretty much the arts, and when they got married, and obviously started having a family. So my father left it. He he, he resented leaving the industry his entire life. We, we would talk about that down the road. That he was um, it, my mom's parents had insisted that he give up music in order to marry their daughter because that's such an unstable you know life being in the business is so unstable. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. 
So when you think back to, you know, the formative films and TV shows of your childhood, what comes to mind? Well, Mission Impossible, The Outer Limits, Twilight Zone, those are shows that I watched voraciously when I was a kid. And I was a magician. Wow. So that's, yeah, I started, that's my first passion was magic. And I still do. In fact, I can show you just over my shoulder, there's my guillotine that I just bought. Uh, Holy the shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, there was, uh, during the COVID, the arts obviously took a hit, performing arts took a hit. So a lot of magicians were selling their stuff. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to get that. Because I used to have a big act. Like I used to do a, a touring stage show with like the floating lady and the zigzag and the trunk where you jump in and out of it and all that stuff. It was like what I did for a living when I was in high school. I used to, I had this little card that allowed me to perform in, in bars and nightclubs. I was like 16, but they would allow you access wow. to these places to be a performer. So I did all that stuff. And then, so that was like the thing for me. I, and this is a roundabout way of saying, um, I used to watch this TV show called The Magician with Bill Bixby, which was like really great. So that stuff, like the, it was always genre stuff for me. Like that was my passion anyway. That's like the coolest thing that you can think of doing when you're a kid is getting a magic set and being a magician. Oh. That's really cool that you got to do that for a while. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've still got in my closet here. I have some friends of mine just a couple of Christmases ago, they found the magician magic set from the Bill Bixby TV series. And it was like in some... I don't know, storage lock or something <laughs> I sold and they found this thing and it's like, it's in my closet. I love it. It's fantastic. So. When's the last time you performed? I perform every Christmas. We have a Christmas party every year because my husband and I got married on Christmas night. We usually do a, an act, uh, you know, like two or three. That's so, awesome. And, yeah. So I do every Christmas. Were you ever interested in a theater or drama or anything like that as a kid? I was in the drama club in uh, the drama troupe. <laughs> our, our teacher was very adamant it wasn't drama club it was the drama troupe and yeah uh, I was in the drama troupe in school and um, I mean I wrote when I was in school I remember the first thing I ever wrote like as a assignment I was in I think fourth grade probably third or fourth grade I would guess not even third grade but anyway the the teacher would give you a picture to you know, look, look at and you have to write a story based on this picture so the picture that she showed us was some Native Americans shaking hands with some pilgrims and this is long before it was politically correct, of course. But so she said, you know, write a story, or write some uh, a descriptive paragraph about this image. So instead of a descriptive paragraph, I wrote about how this the, the, this lovely bracelet wrapped around this uh, one Native American's hand was actually a snake. And as he shook their hands, the thing came to life and came off and nailed the pilgrim right in the neck, <laughs> and he died. And you know. And I wasn't even doing it because that's what they should have done in the first place. I just think it was, to me, that was a great twist on this ridiculous thing. I did that. I remember getting like a D or something on it because they said, no, <laughs> you, do. you don't do that. What you do is you tell us what you see in the picture. And I said, well, that's what I saw in the picture. Well, okay. So then right away, it was like, well, this kid's going to either be a terribly deranged or he'll become a filmmaker. <laughs> Tomato, tomato, probably. Right? <laughs> so would you say that's uh if you had a eureka moment that you can point to, maybe like a movie or performance that you saw that you had a light bulb go off in your head and you'd say, you know, I want to make movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. I saw a double bill of a double bill of the stuntman and Halloween. So I was like, I was just out of high school. You know, that sort of year where you're going, what am I going to do? I got a scholarship to go to like a college to whatever for whatever purpose it was a history scholarship and i think i applied to attend humber college in toronto now it's like a liberal arts college sort of thing at the time i thought well i'll take radio tv arts and there's a story to this so it's going to take radio tv arts at this college and little uh, that weekend i went to the cinema and i saw 
Stuntman and uh, Halloween. And Halloween is basically a movie where you can feel a filmmaker making the movie. Like you can feel Carpenter on that movie. And the Stuntman, the Stuntman is basically the world of making a movie. And Peter O'Toole is like the greatest filmmaker in history as far as I'm concerned in that, in that role, in that movie. He's great. It's like David Lean meets Orson Welles. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> great character. So I saw those two pictures back to back and I thought, you know what? I don't know that I want to do that. Maybe I want to do this. And, you know, Radio TV Arts was like a way into it. And then that same weekend, cut back to me being a magician, that same weekend, I had a phone call from a guy in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada, a guy named Fred Barry, who said, I saw your show. You did a performance at some school or something. And he said, or a fair, I guess it was. And he said, I saw your show. I think you're terrific. We'd love to have you host a kid show we're doing a TV show here in Peterborough. So suddenly, instead of having to go to the college, I was just going to go to work and actually literally jump into the lion's jaws and learn how to do it right there. So I said, yeah. And I'm like, what am I, like 18, 19 when I started? And that was that. So I was there. Now, cut to many years later, I'm in Greece back in November or this year, December this year, making a picture. And I get a phone call and a text from a friend of mine who was a film critic in Toronto back in the day and worked for the newspaper, the Toronto Star. And Rob Salem, great guy, trashed my first movie <laughs> <laughs> 35 years because that's how it works and he said to me look would you do a lecture to my zoom class at humber college about screenwriting and i said okay why not because that to me was the perfect sort of circle you know mm -hmm. it all made sense then so i said sure here i am and two o'clock in the morning in Rhodes, Greece. So yeah, I'm happy to talk. Anyway, so that was the, boy, long-winded or what? This is why I do three drafts of a script because I'll do the first draft and it's like 400 pages long and then I get it. Yeah. But that's the that's the deal. So I just saw those two movies and I thought, well, I want to be a filmmaker. I want to make movies. I mean, Halloween's a good one to break your teeth in on. It'll, it'll catch you for sure. Oh, yeah. So just sticking on writing for a bit, what does your writing process look like? Are you a heavy outliner? Do you like to sit down and go with the flow? How's it usually look for you? Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> because right now, for example, I'm writing a script based on an R.L. Stein book called Midsummer Night's Scream. So I'm working on that now. And I, with Bob's stuff, usually there's usually a germ of a great idea in the book someplace and then a lot of stuff around it. In the case of this, usually you'll find a great idea and then you ride with it. I haven't really outlined the one I'm doing right now seriously. I have a treatment. I did like a four or five page treatment to get the studio interested. But the rest of it, I'm kind of like finding it as I go along because the character is all in my head. The scenario's there. I know exactly the beginning of all that stuff's there. But in terms of sitting down and doing a beat by beat, I tend to do that on a 10 page increment sort of deal. Like I'll figure out the next 10 pages, the next 10 pages, because the movie's already there. It's like I subscribe to the Michelangelo theory of uh, not to put myself in. <laughs> Please, hello. No, no. The, the theory that if you just chip away what isn't the movie, whatever's left is the movie. Right. And so I kind of subscribe to that because I like to have it down to, especially when I'm directing a picture, I like my script to be tight because I hate shooting scenes I'm not going to use in the movie. Because every time I do that, I look at it and I learned that the hard way my first movie, but I'll look at it and go, that six hours or whatever I spent shooting that scene. I could have had more time on the other scenes that needed more time and so on. So I, I write really tight. Like I'll write it and then just go in and chop, chop, chop. It'll take me, the script, like I'm on page 50 something rather right now. Mm -hmm. And that represents about 85 pages of writing. 
but I'll go into it and go every scene, bang, I'll go back over it again and again. Then I'll do the first act and then I'll go over the first act again and go trim it, trim it, trim it, and take it from 30 pages down to 21 pages and just trim it, trim it, trim it to the point where the only things that are in the script are the things that you absolutely need to know. Would you say that it changes much depending on whether it's a feature film or television, your process? Uh, not for me. It hasn't really. I mean, I've done both, obviously. I haven't done episodic TV in a long, long time. And I remember writing for episodic, but I always wrote for anthologies. In that respect, it was always like a little mini feature film. It was always like a little tiny piece of, you know, self-contained story. That's always been the case. It's I, I'm not much for serious stuff, and that's... It, drives my agent crazy he's like they're gonna do like a nine episodes of this thing and then i'm like well if you can't tell the story in like 90 minutes I, i'm not entirely sure that i the story i need to tell so many of those shows oh man i mean god love them and creatively wonderful stuff and artistically wonderful stuff. performance is often very great but i mean there's so much padding in those shows you're going oh my god this whole thing could have been sorted with like a conversation in a car the greatest thing that ever happened to screenwriters was the invention of the cell phone because suddenly you could put a little uh, earbud in on your cell phone and you're talking on the phone so you can get expository dialogue out <laughs> while you're running from the monster or chasing the car or whatever you're doing. But you can be talking on the phone. Look, I got to tell you, you know. Yeah, I never thought about right. that. That is funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So speaking of, of scripts, what are some red flags, I guess I should say, that jump off the page to you if you're picking up a screenplay for somebody writing their screenplay out there? Yeah, because I do. I'm like about half and half. Like 50% of the stuff I direct, I've written. And 50% is something that a script's come to me. And I usually do a rewrite anyway. And sometimes it's a, my name's on it. Sometimes it's not, but I'll always do a rewrite. So the red flags for me in a script tend to be, you know, they tell you that the first 10 pages of a screenplay are the most important. They are for the reader, but the second 10 are the most important for the film. Because an audience will give you the first 10 minutes of a movie, but they won't give you a second 10. So you got to really have it down. So in the reading of it, the first 10 pages, you got to grab them, you know, by the throat and really get it going, get the story going. Superfluous scenes is the thing that is my bet noir, as I was saying before, like stuff that I look at and go, this scene just goes on and on and on. I look at that as, as a, as a director, I look at a scene written like that. And I, I'm always thinking, how late can you come into the scene? Because most of the work in rewriting something is cutting off the front end of scenes, unless it's got something, you know, this uh, continuous action or something like that. But, but in terms of the actual scene itself, the mechanics of a scene, you get into it as late as you can, you leave it as early as you can. And that's sort of part of that. And that's quite different than writing like a short story or a novel or something. I'm probably a novel more than a short story, but in, in writing actual you know, fiction writing and, and literature, if you will. Because mm. I've done that too. I've got a bunch of published short stories and that sort of thing. And and that's a different kind of machine because you're, you want the audience to, the audience, the reader, to understand the the colors and the this and the this and you know like i'll read a book and i'm like i really do i need to know the the lovely corrugated iron of the wall or the couch the feel of the couch i don't need it just tell me is it a blue couch or a red couch because i'll get the guys <laughs> but a lot of it in, and another big red flag pursuant to that is a writer who spends this much text describing things in a scene that aren't necessary that's you know that's a book writer as opposed to a screenwriter because just you know interior garage day you know there's a car up on blocks great i don't need to know that it's a, a red car or a green car unless it's story relevant again that's just more of the trimming down of things and keeping things tight and concise for the making of a, of a 
picture like that. Well, you said you had a uh, short stories and such published too. Do you did you struggle switching between the two? You know, script writing versus novel writing. I don't remember struggling with that. I don't think so because you know you consciously are aware of the difference. As a writer, you, you tend to be aware of it. I mean, God knows, I'm not Steinbeck by any means. <laughs> I think the the fiction stuff I've written has been minimalist mm. in many ways, you know, because you know there are certain words you can put on a page that will trigger a vision or a visual uh, cue in a reader's mind, and that's a screenwriting process very much. Yeah, I, I would, it tends to be a tighter version of fiction. I don't, I'm not one of the, the sort of lush romantic novelists. <laughs> gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. It's, it's, yeah. it's like it was like it was the best of times. It was the times. I, we did a movie years ago called Chasing Christmas with uh, dear, dear Leslie Jordan in it. And Leslie played the ghost of Christmas past. And he had this big speech I gave him where he sits and he goes, it was the best of times. Charles Dickens was a hack. He said. <laughs> the best of times, the worst of times. Make up your mind, Mr. Dickens. <laughs> I fami- re-familiarized myself with some of your earlier films today. I watched Prom Night 2. Oh, that's my first movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched it when I was a kid, when I was way, certainly too young to watch it. And I just rewatched it again. I just wanted to ask you, you know, I just made some notes about it. It has a lot of, it has some Nightmare on Elm Street. It's got some Exorcist, some Poltergeist. There's a lot of things mixed in there. So when you're going in to write the screenplay, did you pull from those things? Some of those I named, or maybe what did you pull from? That's a good question. I wrote that script in 80, 1985. So I was nine years old i wrote that thing i you know what the source material for it for me was it was originally called the haunting of hamilton high so i wanted to do a ghost story in a high school and then i kind of looked at what had been done in terms of haunted high schools which wasn't actually a lot and certainly i'd watched i'd seen certainly nightmare i'd seen a bunch of that stuff but to, but to me the movie was as you can tell by the character names the movie was because i figured i was going to get to do one movie and that would be it so i wanted it to be like a love letter to all these filmmakers who i love like buddy cooper very few people know who buddy cooper is but i put him in the movie he's like one of the bad guys i love buddy i wanted it to be like that and you know the line producer or the one of the producers on was ray sager of course who was the wizard of gore imagine that's your first movie i'm the kid from, the kid from nowhere like i'm from literally like a rural town in northern ontario canada with no connections whatsoever so i write this script as a spec essentially and put it in an envelope, like manila envelopes, back when you could do this. I sent it to five or six different production companies in Toronto, and two of them bit, and one of them wanted me to come on board and develop the script with them and turn it into a movie. So we did. Bruce Pittman directed it. We put it together, and it didn't quite work. And all honesty, easily 50% of the reason it didn't quite work was because of my script, because I was still new to this genre. And as I was saying before about trimming stuff down, I learned so much. So the editor and I, because Bruce was going off somewhere else, so the editor and I sat down and cut the movie from 102 minutes down to 65 minutes, took all the superfluous stuff out and said, okay, here's the movie we're going to make. So then the producer gave us like hundred grand in 10 days to go back. So I, my first directing ever was doing the reshoots for that movie. It was, it was an extraordinary experience and, a, and a, a gift that I probably didn't appreciate at the time as much as I have over the years. We went back in and put the movie back together again. And then I rewrote a bunch of stuff and we shot a bunch of stuff. The locker crush scene. Great scene. Great. It's a great scene. (laughs) Bruce did half of that scene. 
But he, he, what he missed, and again, he's a wonderful filmmaker, but maybe not the right match for some of the stuff. What he missed was the suspense, was the build up to it. Because, you know, she goes in, boom, block. And I was the one who came back and I said, okay, we need your fingernails all on the thing. We need, you know, uh, on the locker doors. We need all that stuff to build it up. And we did a lot of that in the movie, was adding suspense elements. And then we shot the ending, because I rewrote the ending and we shot it and, and did a bunch of things, character beats within to make it make sense as a picture. A lot of the elements in the movie that can feel borrowed from other pictures tend to be homage to them more than I wouldn't say they're out and out robbery or, or theft but they were certainly me thinking I'm going to get to make one movie so I'm going to put everything into this movie that I really really love the rocking horse scene was based on a rocking horse in my sister's bedroom when I was a kid when we were kids she had this creepy rocking horse and this thing I thought that's going in the movie that is a creepy scene yeah and it really yeah. is there's a lot of subtext in that stuff that, that Bruce brought in to the fore like he his strong suit is the character stuff in that movie because he really said well what kind of like what weird Freudian elements can we put into this mix? You know, and they were he he kept telling me they're they're all there in the script. But you know, I'm a first time writer. What do I know? I'm, I'm just writing stuff like essentially free flow. Mm-hmm. So, to his credit, he found a lot of those really really interesting subtextual elements and and brought them in. So you said you wrote the script. Uh screenplay and send it out what was it about prom night specific why did you choose prom night to write a sequel to the first that being your choice of franchise well it wasn't so the haunting of hamilton high script was what it was originally called but then the company that bought the script they own prom night gotcha okay okay yeah gotcha. so so gotcha. when we when we first market i still have in the garage i saw the original poster from haunting of hamilton but when they went to market to the film market with it the first screening of this movie was at alfred hitchcock theater at the old warner lot this other formosa cafe so we all went to formosa first then went over and so not too daunting that your very first script your very first movie your very first shot at anything where are you going to screen it the hitchcock theater oh yeah no pressure <laughs> You know, my God. Actually, I put that movie, I just, a little while ago, put that poster up. You can see her behind the, hiding behind the door way back there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see her. I just put that up the other day. Because I, to be honest with you, it was not, when it came out, it got lacerated in Canada, in the reviews in Canada. And because in Canada, of course, unless you're making a movie about wafting wheat fields and so on, <laughs> back in the 80s, you, you've got no respect at all. And no respect, you know. It's only within the last 10 years with the tax credit system up there that you've had a great horror resurgence. A lot of great horror pictures have been made in Toronto and around there, which back in the day, that would never have happened. You've got no respect for it. So I kept that poster in the garage for years because part of me was like, yeah, you know what, it's just something I did. And, you know, I've done many of the things since then, a lot of them pretty good. So, you know, so I thought, okay, the other day I was talking to a friend of mine down here who owns a tiki bar and he's a huge fan of the movie. And I kept thinking he was just pulling my leg, you know, but it turned out he really was. And he said, look, you know, you, you need to be proud of this thing. This is a piece of schlock culture that people really love. And they, somebody had told me that Tarantino was a fan of the picture. And I didn't necessarily believe that. But then I found out that he has the poster in his office. And then I found out that he shows it in his theater in L.A. at the Beverly, the New Beverly Cinema. He shows it there like a couple of times a year. It's coming up on the 25th of this month. He's showing it again. In wow. I, I yeah. didn't know that. I thought, you know, maybe it's time to blow the dust off the thing and bring it back into the room. So there it is up on the wall. And it's the first time I've done that. And let me just tell you, you should be proud of it. You know, the, the, regardless of what 
you know, you end up thinking about the movie in retrospect or how you feel about it. It is appreciated by a lot of people. A lot of that is the thing for a lot of people, myself included. I, I thank you for that. It was really kind, and I do. I I've come to understand the appreciation of it that I didn't. It wasn't until it was things like like I go on film sets now, you know, and it used to be kind of tongue in cheek, and they say, "Good morning, Mr. Oliver." Good morning, Mr. Oliver. I'm going to go direct a movie, and then there was this really weird shift in the demographic of film crews when suddenly the Mr. Oliver became actually Mr. Oliver because they all grew up on Are You Afraid of the Dark and on Goosebumps. And they're going, oh, you're the guy that did the one with the clown. You're the one that did with the doll and all this. And it was a really interesting shift because suddenly the thing that you're thinking of, because again, back in the early 90s, I mean, we didn't get a lot of respect for this stuff. It was just, you know, something goofy. And now it, it changed a lot. And and the people's perception, and that's what my friend Rory was saying also, was that the, the, the perception of this work has changed. People became sort of, as pop culture became, look, if John Waters can get a star <laughs> on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, all bets are off, folks. And I love John Waters. But the idea that his work has become part of the American artistic iconography. Wow. Here we are. So why not? You never know w- what you're working on, how it can affect somebody down the road. No, you don't. And I found that with all the Christmas movies I've done too, that we get emails and letters and, and things from people who are deeply touched by some of this stuff. Like I, when I do it, you, you try to imbue as much actual emotional integrity into the work when you do it, because you want to believe that you're doing something good. And because nobody sets out to make a bad movie. But you want to believe you're doing something good. And so you try to, you know, and often with the speed we have to do stuff, there's no time for you to make up stuff. So you just have to pull it out of your own heart and put it on the screen because there's no time to, to tell lies. <laughs> you can only tell the truth. That's the funniest <laughs> thing about this stuff. Yeah, you know, people say, oh, but none of this could really happen. No, trust me. Most of the stuff that I write about actually has happened in one way or another to, you know, sometimes it's allegoric, but still, yeah. it's pull stuff from your life. How different was the final product from the original screenplay of Prom Night too. Like where some like a scene that I really enjoy is the cafeteria scene where she kinda slips into that nightmare realm. Was that in the original screenplay? Yeah. Oh yeah, that stuff was there. That was a hard thing too, because I remember and it's always been a struggle for me when I'm writing scary stuff, is your hero, your lead character is undergoing all these sort of horrific things. And at a certain point you gotta go, Okay, they have to think they're either crazy or, you know, or people are pulling their leg or something. So it's always difficult to keep your lead character sympathetic and not go, look, I saw a face in the thing, in the soup or whatever. That's a hard thing to get to keep them relatable to the audience because at some point the audience goes, J- you know what? If your apartment's haunted, here's an idea. Sublet. <laughs> it makes for the shortest haunted uh, hotel, ha- haunted house uh, movie in history. You know, it's like, well, guess it's time to move. <laughs> That's what was genius about James Wan's Insidious. Was it wasn't that the house was haunted, it was that the kid was haunted. That was brilliant. So how far post Prom Night 2 did the third one get wheels and now you're directing and writing? I had written that script pretty much the same time as I wrote the original one because I thought, well, this character would then do this and this mm. this you know, this is how this would work. So I wrote it almost at the same time, just kept in the drawer. And I remember it wasn't much longer because we did that movie, it came out in 87, and we were on the floor doing Prom 3, I think early 89 maybe, something like that, maybe maybe even late 88 actually. So it wasn't very long after that because that Prom 2 did some money for them. You know, it did money and over the years it's done very well, I think. So you had a little bit of experience. You said you uh, directed the reshoots, but how was it now? Now you're the guy, you're writing. I'm sure it's stressful, but it's got to also be, you know, kind of freeing that you don't have to actually answer to anybody. It was. I had a very strong producer on three, Peter, who was, he wasn't really present during the prep period, 
But then on the actual shooting, he was. And we didn't necessarily see eye to eye on certain things in it, but he, to his credit, gave me free reign. He was just there making sure that financial people, because a first time director, you know, making sure that it didn't go off the rails. So, and again, in retrospect, that was a gift that I only, you know, years later sort of really understood. Because he could have just said, no, we'll hire some other director very easily but did so he actually had some faith in me and, and and gave me credit to do it so yeah so we jumped into that and it was a lot of fun uh, actually making it was a lot of fun my friend tim conlon was the lead in it and we were all friends uh we were all friends in toronto so it was tim and david stratton the guy playing the his best friend and the girl was courtney taylor and um he was also a great friend so we had this blast it was like summer camp for us but i remember there's a scene in that movie where the zombies come up out of the football field because he's been burying the bodies in the football field right they're supposed to come up out of it so there's this guy george Shabala, who was a uh, famous boxer, I think, in Canada. He's a big, like, heavyweight boxer or something. And he was going to play one of the teachers in the school who gets eviscerated, and then the, uh, the kid has to hide the body in the football field. So in its nightmare sequence, the bodies start coming up out of the ground and coming at them. So I remember being on set. It was cold. It always, it's always cold shooting in Canada. <laughs> I've shot in the summer there, and it's cold. So we're shooting. It's cold in this football field. you got to put the, the three actors are in the holes in the ground. We put a little bit of stuff over top, put some sod on top. We're all ready to go. Cameras are getting all lined up. And then suddenly, I haven't yelled action or even rolling yet, and the ground starts to move, and George Shavala gets up out of the thing. He's all in zombie makeup. Gets up, comes out, and goes, Ron, how much longer are we going to be? And I said, well... George, about 20 more minutes now. <laughs> put him back down the hole because I'm a big guy. You know, it takes, I said, no, no, George, I get it. So we put him back in. It was it was great. It was like one of the, sort of, you know, you're the director of the movie. You're going, okay, they don't tell you about that in film school. <laughs> That's a cool scene too, by the way. I uh, Recently, Ron, I just spoke with Richard Dumont. Wonderful things to say about you and you guys' time together. So just take us through how you've done, the obviously, some of the classic Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes. How did that relationship begin? How did you get involved on the show with DJ and everything? Well, that was from Prom Night 3, actually, mm-hmm. because uh, DJ had seen Prom 3, or somebody had sent it to him, and they were looking for Canadian directors for that series because they were shooting it in Montreal, so they needed Canadians. <laughs> so they looked through Canadian directors, and there weren't a lot of Canadian directors doing dumb schlock like I do. <laughs> so DJ saw it and loved it because we had the same taste in like great old B movies and you know Hollywood's classic B movie stuff. So he saw it and loved it. He said, come on over, we'll talk. So I went over to his place and we sat and hung out a little bit and chatted. And I read the script and the, for the pilot, or for the first episode. He did the pilot, which was the tale of the twisted paw or something. It's like the monkey's paw, I think. And he did the pilot episode to sell it to Nickelodeon. But then they buried the pilot somewhere later in the season mm. because it was as strong as it might have been. So then I did the first episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? The Tale of the Phantom, Phantom Cab. Cab. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember getting there and going, everything I learned from the experiences of making the couple of movies I'd made, I was like, I'm going to pull out all the stops in this first episode because I may never get to do it again. Because you always think you're never going to work again. So so you go and I just went out and I said, okay, we're going to do this, the reflection shot, we're going to do this and that, that, had it all figured out. This was great. Day one, great team up there, great crew. Day one, I think we went like an hour over, didn't get the day, it was a disaster. And it was my birthday, <laughs> that very first day of shooting. So we're in the, at lunchtime, we're in this cabin, we're in the woods, and we're in this like Boy Scout camp, and we're in the, in the cabin having lunch. And then the lights flicker and go dark. And I'm like, can one more thing go wrong in this day for me? This is insane. And then they came out with a birthday cake. So it was just a same thing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. I, I, man, I haven't thought about that in years. So then 
So I finished the day and the next morning, one of the producers, Gary, said, we need to have a talk. I said, of course we do, because I had obviously screwed up the first day. So we go out and we talk and he says, look, this is your wheelhouse, man. This is this is your built for this kind of thing. So you got to figure this out because you can do a great job here and be wonderful. So I know, but I, you know, I came from features and, and TV. You got to bang, bang, bang. And in Featureland, you got time to figure the scene out. Figure <laughs> So there I am thinking I'm going to lose this gig and that'll be that. And then the notes came in, for, the network saw the rushes from the day before and there were phone calls, a flurry of phone calls. And suddenly everything was fine because the network saw it and loved everything they saw and said, he's making a movie. He's not shooting some dumb TV show for kids. He's making a movie. But by then I'd figured out, okay, so I'm going to do it this way. I need to figure this out, how to shoot faster and how to you know use my angles correctly and, and all that stuff. It was a pretty quick study on it. So by the end of the week we were clicking and we got the thing did it put it together the show worked great for them they loved it and then suddenly i was doing them and i was they stayed they, they said here stay do another one and another one another one. every time <laughs> i thought i leave montreal they would go okay we have one more script for you so that first season i did i think like six episodes maybe five episodes, i forget from there uh nickelodeon was doing a science fiction series in london called the tomorrow people based on some 70s uh, bbc show so they said, why don't you go to London after this and make this series? So off I went to London, did that for three or four months. And then, was it three or four months? Yeah, three or four months, I guess. And then I came back to Montreal and they were all ready to do season two of already Fear the Dog. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, carrying on. Like there was a time, because I had just moved to California in 88, 89 probably. And I just moved there and I spent like a month, if I was lucky, in my apartment in West Hollywood. Like I'd come <laughs> home and a housekeeper who literally was being paid to do nothing because I would come back and I'd be like, yeah, no, that's exactly where I left it when I left here before. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's how that kind of worked out. And then I just kept doing those shows and uh, I did a series with them, same producer, DJ and Gary, a show called Crisscross in Nottingham, England. So I got to spend, I spent most of the 90s overseas. I was shooting in London and Paris and in Berlin. Again, for a guy from a town of 400 people in Northern Ontario, a town that was so small that you turn on the hair dryer and the streetcar stopped. <laughs> but I want to tell you. <laughs> that first episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark, what ended up being the first episode, that's um, one of the many with Aaron Tager. And I know he just passed recently, a couple yeah. years ago. I just wanted to ask yeah. if you have any memories of him to share, oh, God, just for yeah. fans out there. Oh, absolutely. Aaron <laughs> Tager, what a sweet man. He and so many of the actors, the adult actors in that show, in that, in that whole series, but certainly in the show, they were theater actors, theater trained. And, and it comes off, just it comes yeah. off the screen, yeah. Yeah, very strong theatrical presence for the theater community. So Montreal has a great theater scene going on there. And, and actually, arguably, much, there's a lot of places in Canada that have very strong theater. So you can actually pull those people out. And Montreal was like that. There was also something interesting about that. I've never read this before, but the production designer on Are You Afraid of the Dark? I mean, these were French Canadians. And there's an artistic bent to the French Canadian arts mm -hmm. that is unlike anything else in the world. So it wasn't a horror movie show where you felt the influence of Universal Studios monsters or the influence of, of any of the sort of the classic horror movie tropes that we know design-wise. Right. This stuff was these guys were coming up with nightmare stuff, like the, the tale of the ghastly grinner. So I wrote that thing in like a couple of hours one afternoon at the hotel in Montreal because they were like, if you have another story you want to tell, we got a slot. So I wrote this thing that fast. And I said, the guy's like a creepy court jester creepy, scary court jester. And then the designer came in with a sketch because he read the script and said, what about this guy? And I went, oh my God, yes. 
but it was not that's such a French look the gesture with the thing and the it's very 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 French and a lot of the stuff a lot of the work in that show was that and that's what I think made it scarier gave it like an otherworldly quality that i haven't seen the the reboot they did i i haven't looked at it but i, I don't know that they had those same elements so it, it just was an interesting time because montreal and quebec it's it's his own world reflected in that series for sure yeah, and just aaron himself as vink and of course richard asardo those guys just they help make the show and that's why they keep coming back oh, absolutely well yeah no aaron's work in that thing was just great and it, richard and i've been friends a long long time and he i mean he's funny and they, they would occasionally go okay you guys are going way off the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> he and i have the same sense of camp that you know he would just go Whoopi cushions, especially, I mean, things like that. We threw lines in all the time for him. And I, a lot of them made it to the show. But he was, he's, I think, way campier than uh, DJ ever expected. <laughs> and Richard came in for me. He did Dennis the Man's Christmas for me. Then we did it for Warner Brothers. And then he did one of the Beethoven movies for me for Universal. He came in and played that. So we've kept our relationship creatively going a long, long time. And his, his wife doesn't allow me to take him out for drinks. Uh, <laughs> you know, we went to, we were in Montreal one winter on something or other and some i guess probably a dennis menace move and we went out for uh, to the vogue hotel for cocktails and that was the end of that so. <laughs> uh-oh <laughs> yeah i think i poured him into a cab and he they poured him out so your typical are you afraid of the dark episode what's the turnaround like how long are you shooting one episode we shot those in five days Whew. they were but that's the thing i mean a lot of the kids shows now they do them in three days because they're all Jeez. On Saturday, it's crazy. No, we did them in five days, and sometimes it'd be a sixth day if they had really complicated special effects. We shot them five days in a studio. We had a great studio to work in there, and locations, obviously, but a lot of studio stuff. We had great budgets. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't remember the number exactly, but I'm going to bet it was just shy of a million per episode. So that was great. One of the flagship shows for Nickelodeon, obviously, it became. And then we would do, so you do, you would, we'd uh, prep for five days, shoot for five days. You'd cut them in like two or three days. You'd do your cut, director's cut. They'd finish the cut. They'd deliver them. And then the post-production was usually about a month, month and a half. Mm. I spoke with DJ as well. And it was a long time ago, but I believe he mentioned that, I don't know if it was initially that when the show launched, maybe the pilot, that they had to put up 50% and then Nickelodeon put up the other 50. I, I think that makes sense. Yeah, because it was produced in Montreal by a company called Sinar, who went through all kinds of scandal on the back end of that mess. Wow. <laughs> Uh, that's so fun. Well, fun for me because I get to watch it. But you know, uh, yeah. But they—I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Was they put up half the money, and then uh, they probably owned International on it. Maybe I don't mm -hmm. know. For a long time, the rights were tied up in a way that I wasn't fully understanding. You couldn't get a DVD of the show. Um, or, yeah. Yes, I think, but a long, long time because Nickelodeon wasn't releasing them that way or something, and it was a strange thing. Now you can, I, but I think it's through some third arm or something. Yeah, it's still tricky. Yeah, it's interesting. Is it safe to say that, you know, the Are You Afraid of the Dark experience led to the Goosebumps opportunity? Yeah, I was on season two of Dark and Fox was going to do Goosebumps. And I flew from Montreal into Toronto to meet with Deborah Forte, who was the executive in charge of production from Scholastic. We met at the Four Seasons in Toronto. I remember this. Like, it was yesterday. It's crazy. I can't remember what I had for lunch. <laughs> you and me both. Uh, so we had uh, a nice sit down and... She said that they wanted to make it scarier, scarier than I Afraid of the Dark. Much scarier. You want to be scared? Okay, sure. That'd be interesting. But it's interesting, too, because we shot that in Toronto. And the, the, the look for both shows is quite different. Yeah. And I think, again, it's what I was saying before about the Montreal feel of things, very European kind of style. And then the Toronto version is essentially just American television. 
So, you know. But again, we had great designers on Goosebumps, great DP. Actually, the, the director of photography we had in Montreal, a guy named Carol Ike, Carol taught me everything I know about lenses. And he had learned lenses from Fritz Lang's gaffer, you can imagine. That was something. But I got to learn all that stuff from Carol. And then that, like, that's where I, dark, are you afraid the dark's really where I learned lenses, what they mean, not just the refraction of, you know, I'll go here for a wide close-up or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but really what the, the psychological subtext to a lens is, like what it means to the audience when they see things in a certain way, I learned that from him. So, but that's, you know, so Goosebumps was that. Yeah, it definitely led to that. And then I ended up doing a bunch of those. And Goosebumps was funny because, you know, we were very, it was much more corporate than Dark had been because there were a lot of people that you had to get things signed off on. But I remember we did one episode called The Perfect School and I'd written it and it was based on Bob's book, obviously, but I you know, took some liberties and wrote this thing. And then we went and shot it. It's supposed to be a half an hour. And we had such a great time shooting that episode. Just so much fun. And just the visuals of it, I really loved it. And we ended up with a show that was, I think, 38 minutes long or something. And to try to cut stuff out of it was going to upset the flow of the story and some of the narrative would get lost. I said, we can do it, but it's going to feel choppy. I said, what if you gave me, if you give me two more shooting days, I can go in and I'll shoot the rest of an hour long. We only need two more days. I don't need a full five. Just give me two days and think of the money you'll save by having two episodes. And that was the first time they did a two-part like that. So we went in and shot for a couple of days because I, I, I just filled out the story and added some elements to it. Then we had that whole hour long show and then they just cut it in half and showed it over the two week period. So the day they came in and told us that too, because we, I'd asked for it and I'm shooting some other episode, How to Kill a Monster. Uh, we're on set and the uh, producer came in and said, okay, I just had a call from Fox and they said, you have your two days. And there's a cheer from the crew because we don't want to so it was like, oh my God, this is great. With Goosebumps episodes, how much wiggle room is there from the book? You know, is there someone that oh. has to okay everything? Yeah, but Bob and Jane had on that show, and on most of the stuff they, that they've licensed, they have like script approval. They weren't horrible by any stretch about it. They were like, you know, yeah, close enough. The last episode of Goosebumps, the first, uh, the first like iteration of it, the first five years of it. The last episode we shot was a thing called The Cry of the Cat. And that's a book that has nothing to do with the episode. But if you took the elements of the book and distilled it, you get the TV episode. So the, the, the TV episode was meta. You know, it was about the making of an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? So the opening scene, and then we go in behind the scenes, and then it becomes a horror movie inside <laughs> behind the scenes. So it was very meta. We did that way back. This is like 98. I'm going to so, have to watch that one. I don't remember that one. Oh, it's really fun. and But it's totally a send-up of making the show. But then it becomes a scary movie in and of itself. So you're led down one way, go around another way, and come back. Anyway, so I wrote the script, and I sent it in to Bob and Jane to, to get them to sign off. And Bob, I think he called me, and he said, okay, you're either out of your mind, or this is the best script I've read from the whole season, from the whole run of the show. And I said, well, that's very kind. He goes, no, no, you, you, you totally get the tone of it. Great. So I'd written a few of them by then, so I kind of know the machine. But this one was just like the, the sign-off. Because again, you never think you're going to do it again. Right. We did the scene in there uh, after the opening movie within a movie. Then there's a scene right after that where we reveal that we're the movie within a movie and we're on a film set. And we did it all in one. And it was like a four-page sequence. And we figured out how to shoot it at camp, shoot it all in one. And all through the set and everything, and meeting all these characters and introducing everybody and the movement and stuff. And it was just great. And it ends on the director slumping in his chair. Autobiographical. <laughs> so we do this thing, 
And I remember we set it all up, and there, this, it was scheduled for the whole day to shoot this four and a half pages. So we do it, we rehearse it twice before lunch, and we came back from lunch, and we shot it. And then that was it. I said, okay, everybody, we're done for the day. I'm like, wait, what? So then it was like a Friday. So it was fantastic. So we all went out. There was some bar nearby. We all went to this and had fries and wings and <laughs> stuff. And we had a great afternoon. And I said, just go home. And we did it a couple of times. We wrapped at lunch a couple of times in that show because that was a really good crew. Like amazing. We're in a tight ship then, huh? Yeah, really, very much so. And when you do something like that, it allows the crew the freedom to actually have a life. So you mm. can say, because they've been working nonstop on this thing for months. And to be able to say to the crew, look, here, go home, hang out with your kids today. Here's the rest of the day for you, you know, and that just engendered so much love with everybody that we just, you know, that was another really tight crew. We used to take vacations together, the, or the Goosebumps crew. We'd all go to like, we went to Mexico or stuff like that and just hang out. It was great. It's something that really doesn't get considered, you know, usually in those anthology shows, the actors are usually different. I mean, maybe you have different directors here and there, but the crew is really the backbone that stays the whole time and keeps the whole thing moving. Yeah, absolutely. So my personal favorite Goosebumps episode uh, was Vampire Breath, and I wanted to ask you if you had any yeah. mem- just any set memories of filming that one. I remember how cool the set was because it was the the coffin that went down the slide. Yeah, yeah. I remember they built that whole thing. It was fabulous in the studio. I remember that. It was a that was a fun one. I don't remember all the details exactly, but and the guy playing the vampire was terrific. He was again a drama. Yes, director. yes. I was I was going to ask you if he was a theater actor because he it was. just comes off the screen. You know. Yeah, he was so good, that guy. Yeah, Vampire Breath. You can put a gun to my head. I couldn't tell you all the details. Yeah, I understand. There was a point in time when some of those episodes are just like this blurb. Some of them stick in my head. Like the on Are You Afraid of the Dark, The Tale of the Full Moon was the first episode that I wrote for the series. I love making that one. Like I, that, to me, was just all of the things I love, I got to put into that. You know, it's like everything, a bit, bit tongue-in-cheek, a bit, you know, werewolves, which I love, you know, the, the kid is a detective. We did Pet Detectives before there were Pet Detectives, before Ace Ventura. <laughs> yeah. Before Ace Ventura was. Vampire Breath, I I do, I remember liking a lot, but I really remember that slide, because I remember thinking, God, I'd love to take a ride in that coffin. That'd be fun. You know, yeah, I was a stickler for sets as a kid. You know, I loved very creepy, castly looking sets, and that, that one stuck with me, so that's what it was. You're going from prom night, and are you afraid of the dark and goosebumps? Was there ever a situation where they had to reel you back, and you were like, hey man, this is for kids, we can't have, you know, the exploding head? You know what? I don't think so. There was one we did called Werewolf Skin. I wrote that based on the, obviously, the book, and Werewolf Skin... I remember there was a scene in there where the kid's peering in the window and he sees his aunt and uncle taking off their, their werewolf skin because they were the werewolves and they take the thing off. And so they're like naked and they're covered in slime. Now, obviously, I'm, it's a kid show, so I'm shooting it. So we're not showing like frontal nudity or anything. Yeah. But it was this really like because they're all covered in slime. And I remember that, <laughs> the network executive going, okay, what the hell is going on? <laughs> that's just, you know, that's just, it's too, it's too, I said, sexy? <laughs> too sexy for you? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it is, one. But they were like freaked out by it. So yeah, that was one we went maybe a little bit too far. That's hilarious. So, you know, we like you just said, uh, are you afraid of the dark? Goosebumps, prom night too. How do we shift and how does the Hallmark relationship begin? <laughs> so that's an interesting story. So I've been on Hallmark's radar for a long time because I was doing movies at, I did a couple of movies for ABC Family. I did a Christmas picture or two. I did uh, Dennis Menace Christmas picture. We did, I was doing a series of movies for Hear 
obscure TV back then called the Donald Strachey Mysteries. And there were these four, it was uh, the Thin Man, but gay. So it was like husband solving mysteries. They were a blast. And we made them for a million and a half bucks each. And we had, you know, Margot Kidder and like really great, like Sean Young, really fun stars in these movies. Margot, oh, it's one of Morgan Fairchild that I got to work together for the time. So I was doing all these movies and I didn't want to do series. I was not really interested in going back into series work. For no other reason than the fact that I, I'm like, I like a beginning and a middle and an end. The first AD I had on Prom Night 3, who was the first person to sit me down and say, you need to make a shot list. That's how you're going to get your days. And showed me how to do it. A guy named Frankie Syracuse. And Frankie was first on that picture. He eventually became a producer on his own in Toronto. So this movie comes along called Bridal Fever. And it's got uh, Andrea Roth and Delta Burke. And so it's kind of in my wheelhouse, a little camp. And they said, okay, who do you want to have do this? And Frank said, well, what about Ron Oliver? Because he hasn't done one of these yet, and he'd be great for this. So thank you, Frankie. So I go in there, I make this movie. We shot in Toronto, had a blast shooting it, so much fun. Stayed at the Royal York Hotel, the big Fairmont downtown, beautiful. Made the movie, and then they did it, and the numbers were great, and the network loved it, and said, okay, why don't you do another one? And then do another one. So then, (laughs) You start doing that, and then Bill Abbott came along, I think around that time, and that's when they moved into, from strictly rom-com stuff, right into Christmas rom-coms, or Christmas movies. And then it just became a thing. And there was a, like, I was shooting in Vancouver one year, and I think I did five movies one year. And I wrote two of them, and then directed probably four out of the five. And I remember finishing one picture, and I was at the hotel in Vancouver, the second place, and I'm packed, ready to leave, because I've wrapped on the Friday, I'm going to go home and then I'm going to do some editing, you know, online or however. We do it. I guess I had to go in the editing room. So I was, I was going to go home anyway. I was going home for, for a, a week or something where they cut the movie. I had to come back. And as I'm reeling my, my luggage out the front door, one of the producers I'd worked with in a couple of the other movies came running in. He said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to go catch my plane. I'm going to go home. He goes, no, no, here, here, here's a script. Take a look. Just take a look. Here's the pitch. Just look at it. So he's pitching me in the lobby. I'm waiting for a cab to go home. And he said, hey, here's the pitch. Uh, what do you think? And it was a really fun thing. And I said, okay. Turn my wheels around. Back in the hotel. Called my husband and said, you know, honey, I'm not coming home right now. So I stayed up there and I did like three movies in a row, I think. But so that just was happening. And that was, they became a machine for a while. And there was a great like 10 year run. They're kind of, uh, it's, it's a little bit quieter on that front now because obviously the, the finances have changed in a way because streaming's become a thing and the networks are having a hard time. But, you know, I've got one in development over there now that we're in the writing process on right now and another one that I'll probably direct for them. And so, I, I mean, I'm still doing stuff for Hallmark, but it's not quite as hectic as it had been. Out of all the projects you've worked on, uh, what do you consider the most challenging? Which one did you lose most sleep over? That's a really good question. I've never lost sleep over a movie. That's good. <laughs> I love making movies. I've loved it my whole life. It's been my whole life, and I love every second of it. Never lost any sleep. There have been moments when I was a little more frustrated than I would like to have been. I had a project just recently, actually, that was a bit of a challenge because we had a very inexperienced crew. That's one of the problems you're having now with when the streaming folks came along and they would do these you know, episodic runs that you lose all the really top-notch crew and you get people who are relatively inexperienced and you got to bring them. So we've had, there was a, I had a bit of a challenge with that on a picture just recently, but um, you know what? You, you get through it somehow. You always have, there's always enough people on the crew who know what the hell they're doing that you can somehow get the movie made. And then it ends up being, and in the case of this one, it became a, it was a hit and now they're doing two sequels. So, you know, what do I know? But, um, <laughs> 
mean, that was a challenge. And uh, but I don't remember it being. Uh, I didn't lose sleep over it. No, nah, that's good because some people do. Yeah, there, but there's nothing. There's nothing that you can't fix in a movie. There's nothing that can be fixed with a close-up. There's always a way around. If you have some problem, it, the, the best special effect is still a human face. So or fix it in post. You know, we can do that too. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the best advice you've received in your career and who gave it to you? Wow, that's a good question. The best advice I received was probably there was a hair and makeup guy named Lon. And Lon was the hair and makeup artist for RJ Wet for Robert Wagner. And Lon had been around, I mean, since God wore short pants. Lon did he did makeup on Batman, the TV series. He had Frank Sinatra's toupee kit. I'm, I'm a Sinatra fan because I live in Palm Springs. We have Frank's bar at my living room. I'm sitting, I, so I'm talking to him, I'm sitting at Groucho Marx's desk, by the way. What? Um, Jesus. Cool. I, got a bar built. You should have, you should have led with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Buried the lead. Anyways, but so one day, we're, it was a challenging day on Dennis the Menace Christmas in Montreal because they told us it doesn't snow there and in the winter until January. And of course it starts snowing in October. So, and we have kids in snowsuits and they all have to pee at the same time. But anyway, <laughs> we're having one day and I remember Lon turned to me, I was going, this is just, oh, and Lon turned, he said, this too shall pass. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? You're right. This too shall pass. And we're going to make another movie and another movie and another movie, you know? So, so far, that's the best advice I've received. This too shall pass. I wish I had uh, received it a lot earlier than it would be nicer to have had it. instead of getting the mid 2000s maybe in the mid 70s would have been nice but but um but yeah it's uh, that's probably the best advice i ever got this too shall pass now, this is something i like to ask everybody because you never know what they're going to say have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal say my career <laughs> that's a good answer like i don't know how it happened no, I you know what I haven't. I haven't, and people. Yeah, I don't particularly believe in a lot of this stuff. Right. But more often than not, the cold light of day often shows you that the ghosts in the closet were the suit. I'll tell you one thing that did happen. This isn't okay. So I have a monkey here. I'm gonna take you on a tour. All right. So I have a monkey on Frank Sinatra's bar out here in the living room. So let me just show you this monkey. Forget the luggage on floor. We're packing. Um, <laughs> so there's the monkey. Okay. Up there. Okay, this is Frank's bar. Wow. So the, the monkey's name is Aaron. So how the monkey came to us was we were at a vintage marketplace, like a flea market, you know, uh, here in Palm Springs. And this lady had this set up in one corner. Um, she had like a, a chair and a table, a dress dummy, a lamp, some books, stuff, all scattered around. And then on the, on the ground was this monkey. And I said, great monkey. And it's old. That monkey's old. And I said, well, how much uh, does the monkey work? And she said, well... Um, if you put batteries in him, he will. Great. So how much is the monkey? She says, 30 bucks. And I said, because I'm clever this way. I said, does that include a free exorcism? <laughs> we all laugh. I'm standing with, do you know Udo Kier, the actor Udo Kier? I'm not familiar. Okay. So Udo and I are there with my husband and his partner and some other people. Like, there's six of us there. We all laugh at my funny joke. And as we laughed, there's no wind in downtown Palm Springs because it's up by the mountain. We all laughed. The dress dummy fell over, the lamp fell over, and the books fell out the chair. And everybody looked at each other like it was weird. And I said, I'll take him. <laughs> that's why we have a monkey on Frank Sinatra's bar. I'll say that counts as supernatural paranormal. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it can. Why not? But again, I was with the Udo Kier. You know, uh, Udo was um, Dracula and Andy Warhol's Dracula. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he's yeah. my neighbor next door and, Man. Uh, 
Yeah, so he did. It. He he married my husband. And I he he became an ordained minister for us and did our marriage ceremony. It's great. Yeah. So anyway, so he was there. So I guess it maybe you know could be considered supernatural because you know he's spooky. Yeah, I meant to ask you this earlier. Did you happen to keep the uh, comic for the ghastly grinner? Yeah. Um, oh, you have it. I, I think, it's in a box in the garage. I think it's out there. I think I'm pretty sure I still have it. I had the ring from Prom Night Two. Mary Lou Malone. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's I had awesome. That for years, and I was shooting a movie called Christmas at the Plaza, and because I love the Plaza Hotel, and. I was talking to the props guy on that show who was a big horror fan and loved Prom 2. And he was so good to us on that show. He did an amazing job every step of the way. So I thought, you know what? It's time. So I brought the ring to the set one day and I had my husband set it up and I gave it to him as a gift. His eyes welled up. He was like really emotional. So he has that. Um, I had the gravestone for a long time, but over years it fell apart. But I think I'm pretty sure I had the comic book someplace. That is cool. Well, Ron, to uh, put a bow on everything, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Anything you can tell us about without getting in trouble? Well, the yeah, the, um, the Stein book I'm doing now, um, there's a couple other movies that, that there's one I've got a deadline on. I have to finish by the end of next month and uh, for the script. And oh, gosh. A couple of Christmas things uh, coming up and then sequels to uh, a couple of movies I did last year. So there's a bunch of stuff um, all happening, and you kind of wait and see how it goes. Because who knows, with the writer's strike and the director's strikes, potentially occurring this year like in summertime everybody's sort of playing their cards very close to the vest but i don't know worst comes to worst you spend the summer at home and float in the pool <laughs> yeah it's been a pleasure talking to you and if you're down i'd love to i already okayed it with richard yeah, i'd love to get you and richard together down the road for a chat if you're willing and oh able. yeah i'd love that that'd be great it's hard to try to find a day to do it as you can see by yeah yeah it'd be down the road yeah. but yeah no i'd love to it'd be fun all right, that sounds great. Well, thank you for giving me some of your time, Ron. Oh, Justin, thank you. I, I apologize for being late, but I appreciate you a whole lot. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Ron. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.